The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about inhalation injuries. Um, some stuff we see pretty often during the winter, starting to see a little bit more in the summer. I actually flew one of these the other night. Um, pretty interesting topic. So with me today, I've got the Michael Griggs, uh, nocturnal critical care pharmacist here at UMC. Uh, spends most of his time at the critical care tower. Again, joining us is uh, Dr. Taylor Walks, one of our EM residents here at UMC. And then Dr. Joseph Doherty, Joe Doe, a board-certified emergency medicine and critical care, also attending physician here at UMC. Welcome this morning, guys. How are y'all? Good. Good. Yeah, thanks good. for having us on the pod. Yeah, man. Great to be back. All right. Um, so let's get down to it. Right off the bat, let's just give our definition so everybody's on the same page. Um, we talk about inhalation injury. It's a broad term and includes pulmonary exposure to a wide range of chemicals in various forms, including smoke, gases, vapors, or fumes. Inhalation injury from smoke exposure is commonly seen in patients exposed to fires. Um, pulmonary complications following burns and inhalation injury are responsible for up to 77% of deaths, among which a majority are due to carbon monoxide poisoning. So when you think about inhalation injury, big thing we think about fires, but it can be a number of different sources, chlorine, pesticides, all kinds of fun stuff that's out there every day. Um, big thing with these things is you can't see them. This is all, most of the stuff we're talking about is internal. You might see a couple of subtle clues on the outside, which we'll talk about later, but this is an internal problem that we kind of got to treat just by general guess based off what you can find. Um, so first this morning, let's just talk a little bit about um, working through the process. So no different than the inhalation injury recur. So go through upper airway, tracheobronchial injury, um, parenchymal injuries, and then systemic stuff. So when we talk about above the airway and the upper airway of the uh, injury, we're talking about everything above the cords. So this is stuff typically we could see on the outside, right? Um, this is stuff you'd look in, look at their singed nose, hairs, all those typical textbook stuff. You might see some black sit in the back of their mouth, maybe some redness, some erythema, so that, that kind of stuff, just swelling, general things. Um, irritation and coughing. What is there anything else y'all look for to say, hey, this is just upper airway, I'm not as concerned? Well, a lot of this is clinical exam. Um, for historic features, a lot of these are going to be patients who are uh, like uh, they are in a, in a confined space in a fire for a while, um, prolonged exposure to a fire. Um, it's going to be your heat injuries. Um, and a lot of determining what we're determining here is, does this patient need their airway protected? Do we need to intubate them? Um, a lot of this is, a lot of it's clinical exam. Um, you know, are, do they have strider? Are they coughing a bunch? Are they hoarse? Um, you know, a lot, we, the evidence shows that, you know, really like a flash injury, singed nasal hairs, really most of them don't have actual upper airway injuries. Um, but the patient who, you know, gets pulled out after having been in a fire for a while. Fell asleep on the couch and yeah. didn't didn't know something was cooking still on the stove, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Those are the patients that they don't necessarily all need to be intubated, but you need to do a good exam and, you know, do they have voice changes? The best way to do that is ask the patient, do you feel like your voice is different? Those yeah. are the patients you need to be concerned about and be considering early airway management. And there's not a whole lot of things. Some 
some people I've talked to over the years are like, oh, well, they've got redness in the back of their throat. They need a whole bunch of antibiotics, like even for strep, that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't think that's truly necessary, but in most of these patients, it's more of, hey, is this going to get worse? Is the swelling going to get worse? Is gonna, something going to happen in the cords? Am my animal going to get swollen? Any of those kind of things. You start dealing with physical obstructions. Um, is there anything, Michael, you think of when you start thinking about physical obstruction? Would you think racemic epi if they start having voice changes just to kind of get by you some time? Or is yeah, that I mean, something? You, you can, you know, try some racemic epi if you do have some, you know, strider or any concern for that. But I think just honestly, the biggest thing is, you know, jumping on this and being a little bit more proactive when there's, you know, less edema. When we can maybe go with a, a smooth, easy RSI approach versus if you kind of sit on a little bit, then you might be thinking a little bit more of a delayed sequence approach, which is just a lot more involved from a, a medication perspective um, and then also um, is an approach that might not be used as often as an RSI and so there's some finesse to that too. True. I think another thing you mentioned like we're talking about you know upper airways specifically these are things like you said you can see I think another thing that we forget everyone's always like what does their throat look like what does their throat look like you have a patient comes in with extensive facial burns um, that's another big clue that if they have a extensive facial burns that they're much higher likelihood of having airway involvement. Um, and so, you know, I think if you have airway involvement along with, uh, you know, skin involvement, um, your mortality goes up like 20 to 25%. So we're talking about someone who may have had uh, skin burns along with inhalation injury. Don't forget that that's a potential, something you can see that could potentially help you with understanding their airway involvement. Which also leads us down to tracheobronchial a little bit here. You talk about skin stuff on your face, those flash burns you mentioned before. A lot of times, especially if something's exploding or explosive in front of you or has a backdraft and literally flashes, um, what people do, what do they usually do? They gasp, right? So they, when they do, they inhale all those gases and it starts getting sucked down. So it gets sucked down farther into your airway. It's, now we're below the cores where the tracheobronchial injury These are the ones that honestly kind of spook me the worst. I mean, it's the first that you start coming down there and it's something you again you can't necessarily see. Do they gasp? Do they get really good? Well, it may not have hit the upper airway. It may have just gone all the way straight down because you inhaled and gasped really really fast. You don't see it near as fast. And that's basically a thermal burn. Yeah, it's all thermal. Um, usually, it's caused by chemicals and stuff that's in the smoke. So remember, when you think about smoke, it's non. Everything's not combusted all the way. It's not broken all the way down. It's not clean. Steam burns can happen this way. So they, when you look at the smoke or the steam itself, it's white. But most of the time we're talking about stuff that's really carbonated. It's really black. It's really sooty. It's really nasty. Um, these are those ones that bother me probably some of the most. If you get those house fires or trailers or they're burning something, burning tires, anything dirty, plastic, nasty, um, basically it's synthetic that we make every day. <laughs> it gets shipped over here um, or we make here in some factory. Those are the ones that are going to give you the worst. Yeah, and I think that's where um, having that firsthand insight from those first responders, you know, on the scene telling us what actually is going on at the scene. What did they see singed or burned in the house? Just so we can start kind of thinking about, uh, you know, what toxins this patient might be exposed to. And, like, do we really need to um, get into some of the other therapies that we're going to be talking about? Oh, yeah. it's it, The biggest thing you do is scene size up where they come from. Just I know a lot, especially on fire scenes, you know, the ambulance is parked further back obviously for good reason you got trucks and everything all lined up running lines everywhere um getting that scene size up to know hey look this is what they're exposed to this is where they came from instead of just rushing to an ambulance rushing them to a hospital local facility whatever it may be trying to get them out of there i'm all about trying to get them out of there but 
take those two seconds to kind of figure out, hey, were they exposed to anything weird? Was there, I don't know, were there a bunch of uh, chlorine tablets for a pool sitting next to the back door? Uh, gasoline, diesel, any, people like to put stuff in enclosed spaces. Was it a shed that blew up? All those kinds of little things that give you clues of how far we're going down the rabbit hole. Um, is there anything else that really bothers y'all about tracheobronchial stuff? I mean, is this, most of the time, like Joe says, thermal burn. So it's going to take time. Nothing with burns is quick, right? It's all downstream long-term care. Um, but the acute resuscitatory phase really can make a difference in how far this goes. Uh, and uh, when we talk about thermal burns, we're all familiar with the Parkland formula for, um, for burn resuscitation of fluid, but, but something to keep in mind is in the lungs, there is a ton of surface area. And that's not accounted for in your body surface area um, calculations. But just because of the insensible losses from that, from the burn to the lungs, they can require a lot more fluid than predicted. Oh, yeah. Which leads me to one of my favorite things is once that Foley's placed and put in there, mm-hmm. go off your output. Yep. Parkland or any yep. one of the number formulas are great. They, um, they do a really good job at trying to figure out kind of where you're at and starting your resuscitation mm-hmm. but once you can place a foley man let that thing ride it's a good yeah. it's a good start but yeah. once yeah exactly well once um just the patient response is what you're looking at and urine is the best yeah and i mean i think in these patients especially we have to be very very mindful of our fluid resuscitation and not just you know going based off a formula and loading up all, with them all this fluid just given the potential extensive lung injuries that can happen and we know the the harmful effects of fluid in our ARDS patients and what that what ends up happening with a lot of these really large inhalational burns. Well, I think that's kind of what you said, Will, is some effects of this, like developing ARDS, doesn't happen in the first three hours, right? No. Maybe in a severe case, but we're talking about loading someone with a ton of fluid, right? And then subsequently developing ARDS and now you're really in trouble. Um, and so I think that's where probably this might be the most difficult management of this, right? I mean, people can always be extubated if you intubated someone who didn't, you know, all those things. But managing the fluid status of these patients yeah. is not an easy thing. And, the, um, yeah. and these patients do require often a good bit of fluid up front. But just keep in mind, over the course of their entire ICU stay, positive fluid balance does correlate with increased mortality. Yeah, and these patients, uh, just from their inhalational injury, are so prone to flash pulmonary edema just from the injury and all the inflammatory changes that occur that, um, as Taylor said, it's kind of hobbling down a tightrope with one leg. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, guys, when we're talking about urine output, we're thinking, you know, 0. 0.5 to 2 max cc's per kilo per hour. I mean, we're not, that, those are the numbers we pretty much all stick with, I yeah. think. If you're getting over 2, um, not counting your initial output, obviously, but you're going over 2, we're we're – we're stepping over the edge, so yeah, just be mindful what we're going with here. ABLS, Advanced Burn Life Support, does a pretty good job about teaching the titration of fluids, oh, and yeah. burn centers tend to have some pretty good technologies to help guide that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Which leads us on down to parenchymal injury. So this is the delayed stuff. This is stuff you're bringing up, Michael. It's uh, This is the delayed allostaxis, the alveolar collapse, all the d- decreased surfactant kind of things. Um these have a loss of hypoxic vasoconstriction, so they basically dilate out. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a really bad day when you start getting down to the parenchymal injury itself. What are y'all gonna? Taylor brought up these are not these are not 
the ones you're going to see, except for in severe cases in the first hour, maybe, but maybe first two, maybe first three hours. Is there something that clues you into the fact, hey, this is how deep this rabbit hole went? It went all the way down? I think if you're, as your PEEP inquire, uh, requirement increases, um, I think that's, you know, kind of sign number one um, potentially is uh, having difficulty with uh, ventilation, oxygenation. Um, and, you know, like you said, Sometimes if you have external signs that extensive facial burns, extensive mm -hmm. uh, uh, skin burns, that's maybe a predictor that the inhalation thermal burn portion of this was more severe than, uh, than you thought. Um, but trying to, to get an idea, I think, as your PEEP requirement goes up, um, that, that can be a sign that, that your ARDS is, is really starting to set in. Yeah, and I think... Um Honestly, what inspired this episode was we had um, all three, all four of us had a really big inhalational resuscitation, um, and these guys were even bronching down in the emergency department. I think obviously that's like the ultimate definitive way to, you know, assess the damage of it, um, and that just is really able to you know drive and dictate the aggressiveness of our care. Oh yeah, something to worry about with these patients is you talking about alveolar hemostasis. So we're talking about going up on Pete. Um, Everything, again, with medicine in general is a trend, especially when we're talking about uh, critical care and definitive care. But how do you, when you start going up on PEEP, you're going to start seeing your SATs drop. You're going to maybe start seeing your end title decrease even a little bit, starting cardiac output going down. You start noticing your PEEP, hey, my SATs are going down. I'm having to increase my PEEP. My, my pressure across my alveolar is not just exactly correct. It's not It's tipping one way or the other. My membrane is just not balanced correctly. Um one of the things that happens there is part of the process. Um, you have decreased fibrinolytic activity, right, across the alveolar membrane, and it starts developing a whole lot of fibrin um, deposits. So, which also forms nitric oxide, right? Which we use nitric oxide all the time in the ICU for um, basically uh, pulmonary vasodilator. But where does this start going down the rabbit hole of? What can this do for your patients? How does that make it worse? Is this like a reviving cycle? Is this something that just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse over time? Well, the so what's happening with the nitric oxide? So the the uh, fibrin deposits are actually causing your immune cells in the lung to secrete uh, to excrete nitric oxide. So what that's doing is you have these units of lung which are not ventilated, and you're getting vasodilation caused by that nitric oxide so you're worsening your ventilation perfusion mismatch so then you get areas of lung patches of lung that you know there's blood going by um not getting any gas exchange in it and your sats getting worse everything's getting worse it's a lot harder to ventilate them it's a lot harder to oxygenate them you're starting to have to go down this rabbit hole of all right well what, what do i do next what do i do next you, great we've got them intubated great we've got them on some unified oxygen trying to make everything a little bit so they don't dry them out but now I'm starting to get with that snowball effect. Everything's starting to roll, roll, and getting worse and worse. So yeah. from a from a just from a vent standpoint, um, the big thing in these patients, it's I mean, there's no, there's nothing any different in ventilating these patients than there is really with any ARDS patient. It all, it's all about the good long protective ventilation strategy. ARDSNET is the main ventilation um, uh, strategy that we use in the ICU for patients with sick lungs. Um, use lung protective volumes, you know, 60 cc's per kilo ideal body weight of, um, of, uh, tidal volume. Um, and then 
uh, ArtsNet has what they call their uh, PEEP FIO2 ladder. So, you know, it's you really should not be having a – it makes my head hurt when I walk in and find a patient on 100% PEEP5. That really shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. Um, with some exceptions, one of which we'll actually talk about in a little while. Yeah. But um, that's one of the few exceptions. Um, you know, if you look at ArtsNet, and ArtsNet's one of those few trials – Critical care trials, it's very difficult to show a mortality benefit. But ArtsNet is one of those trials that has shown that actually an improved mortality with lung protective ventilation strategy. So limited tidal volumes, permissive hypercapnia, and then uh, your PEEP FiO2 titration. As you go up on your FiO2, you shouldn't go up and up on your FiO2 and then think about going up on your PEEP. You step up on your FiO2, you step up on your PEEP. Um, and it's easy to, you know, Google uh, the ARDSNET protocol. But by the time you get up to 100% FiO2, by ARDSNET, your patients should be on 18, 20, 20. Double, big your, double digits. Yeah. We, we ain't playing here. This yeah. is big double uh, digits. Yeah. So don't be afraid of the PEEP. <laughs> um, and I, a lot of people worry about uh, PEEP with uh, hemodynamic instability. Um, thoracic pressure, pneumo. Yeah. They start, oh, well, ventilator-acquired lung injury, all those things. And also but, head injury, if yeah. you're talking concomitant trauma. At least the better data that I'm familiar with is in head trauma. And you really don't have to worry about increasing ICP until you get over about 15 a peep. The re- patients who will really tank their pressure when they when you increase their peep are the patients who are, are not sufficiently resuscitated yet. Yeah. And sometimes I'll use that kind of as a marker of are they sufficiently resuscitated. I go up on the peep, their blood pressure tanks. I know I need to resuscitate them better. Yeah. Yeah, and also... Um, you have to be really careful with your peep and um, finding kind of that optimal spot um, and doing like recruitment maneuvers and everything just because some of these patients might actually have a clinically significant degree of RV dysfunction. And so that is just increasing the pressure that this RV has to pump against. And you also have to consider that with all these physiologic changes that come with a big burn shock is, you know, your PVR, pulmonary vascular resistance is going to dramatically increase. And we're going to obviously talk a lot about this when we talk about all our medications and everything, but um, everything kind of plays, has an effect on everything else in these really critically ill patients. So is there anything we can do? I'm just going to bring it up, the big elephant in the room. Is there anything we can do to kind of slow down these fiber deposits we're dealing with, this nitric oxide release? Is there some fun little thing everybody's kind of starting to lean towards? Yeah, it's uh, one of my favorite tricks in medicine. I guess we're uh, unveiling the curtain. But you can actually nebulize some heparin. I'm not talking about IV. I'm not talking about sub-Q. Uh, we're actually kind of nebulize some heparin. And what the best part of that is we're able to finally kind of have source control of this nitric oxide production so we can um, hopefully not open up those parts of the lung that are closed off to impair our, our gas exchange. But yeah. I think one of the biggest things is when you're nebulizing heparin is our dose. Right? Doses matter for every source of medications. And uh, we have some literature out with regards to inhaled heparin and the sweet spot for our dosing is actually around 10,000 units and so how to prepare that is you're going to take two 5,000 unit per ml vials and then so that's about two milliliters then you're going to add about three milliliters of a normal saline neb and then you can actually nebulize that um, through your all system and that's kind of the sweet spot because we actually have studies that compared 10,000 versus 5,000 units of heparin and um, we're actually able to show about a seven-day decrease in our um, duration of mechanical ventilation. And I think, Taylor, you can uh, speak to how just important that is for these patients. 
Yeah, uh, I think you know we all go back to this case we had within the last month or so, all four of us, and this is something we did. Um, and you know maybe a couple things that people are not familiar with doing this um, that that we saw, um, and you may see is when you do this, if there's a little blood in the ET tube, that's okay. Um, I think people uh, may see this and be like, we have to stop the heparin, we got to do that. That's okay. Um, you may see, if you don't use nebulized heparin, you may see some blood in the airway, right, with all the sloughing of the airway. That's I'm, I'm more concerned if I don't give heparin and I got blood in the airway versus if I do and I got air. To me, that's saying, hey, they've done started flash pulmonary edema. They're vasodilating out. They're leaking really, really bad. I'm already way behind the eight ball. Right. Yeah, no, nebulized heparin, it's simple. It's You can literally throw it through a neb. Uh, we're using aerogens here. If you're, in a, if you're in somewhere that's got an aerogen, great tool to use. Break the molecule down even farther. Um, biggest thing is you're trying to mitigate that amount of nitric oxide release, right? So you can control that. Yep. We've, we've got drugs that do that on our own. Um, you got EPO if you've got access to it or Velitri, Flowland, whatever you want to call it today. Um, and just I want to talk about just a couple quick things with that heparin. Um, it's nice that we don't really get any systemic absorption of it, so you don't really have to worry about it affecting your coagulation parameters. And then obviously just from a medication safety perspective, this may not be something that everyone's used to. It's not built into your electronic medical record. So it's really just having that closed-loop communication from the nurse, pharmacist, physician, um, APP to really just ensure that actually is getting nebulized and not going through an IV or getting it's up queue, um, just with a high risk med, high risk situation. Um, so Especially think, if you're at a place where it's just you and a nurse. Yep. Right. You may not have a respiratory therapist. You may not have Griggs, you know, <laughs> there to help you. So, uh, you know, you know, there's a lot of things. A lot of times you can look up medications. This is one maybe to have in your back pocket to be comfortable mixing up. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think just in summer, this is a uh, quick, easy medication. It's cheap. It's everywhere. That has dramatic benefits uh, downstream. And I mean, if we can get these patients off the vent seven days sooner, that's seven days less of heavy sedation, pro-deliriogenic medications. That's seven more days of earlier mobilization and physical therapy, um, which you need for patients that are at very high risk for muscle atrophy just due to the nature of the injury itself. So a uh, huge, huge benefit, nebulized heparin, I'll put the links, guys, in the in the bio uh, where we're getting this stuff from. It's out of three or four different burn centers. Uh, two of them are in Texas. Yep. And they're, I mean, really good literature, really good studies. Absolutely. Large population, seeing some really good stuff. So I'll, I'll put it in there for everybody to see. Cool, cool. Going back to your original question about that, uh, epoprosnil or Velitri, I think it's, you know, again, a really incredible medication from multiple perspectives. We can use this to help offload all pulmonary artery pressures, right? So in burn shock, you have an increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance. Uh, Joe talked about high PEEP settings. Um, so that is just an incredible uh, medication we can use from that. But then also there is some thought that our epoprostenil can actually uh, decrease thrombogenesis and decrease platelet aggregation in that airway. And we already kind of alluded to that this cascade is causing this uh, fountain of nitric oxide. And so it's another way that we can decrease this kind of scar formation in the bronchial space and um, really help our hemodynamics and shock management. And we actually were really quick to pull the trigger on um, epoprosnil in our patient uh, that we were resuscitating in the emergency room. And this is something that you're kind of, kind of start slow at maybe, you know, 10 or 20 nanograms per kilo per minute. And we do doses based off ideal body weight. And then to kind of see how that the patient responds and then, um, with the short half-life of this medication, we can up-titrate it, you know, pretty quickly to 
um, help offload our RV, help our event settings, myriad of benefits from this. And again, guys, we're talking about Volitri is something that most hospitals in Mississippi or most community hospitals are not going to have. But knowing, understanding the process of where you're going to go or what you need to get. Hey, I've got a patient that I really think they've got uh, a parenchymal injury. I'm really worried about them. I can do every, like you said, every hospital, small community hospital's got heparin. We can do heparin. Okay, I can mitigate the effects, but I need to get this person transferred. I need to get them somewhere that's got these kind of drugs or it's got this ability to do these kind of things that, again, like we're talking about, increasing morbidity and mortality. And you may not be dealing with a lot of these effects in the first few hours. It's a lot of it's that kind of lung injury. Take It does take time to develop and yeah, absolutely. They're, yeah. they're likely going to be at the burn center. But yeah, sometimes it's two or three hours. The only thing we bring it up yeah. is these days with transfers, sometimes yeah. you may be holding somebody for mm-hmm. six hours yeah. before you get them, get them out. So, um, And it could be polytraumas too. Yeah, even if they're, I must say, get all kinds of stuff with burns. Um, yeah. That propane tank that explodes or anything else like that, all mm-hmm. all real deal. Um, Lean us down to some stomach injuries. So we're talking about the whole body this time. So the big two we all think of off the top of our head is carbon monoxide poisoning and hydrogen cyanide. Both really bad days. Yeah. Um, we talk about CO poisoning. Uh, straight out of the textbook here, we're talking about plastic sold furniture. These are the trailers. Uh, they got a headache. They may start to have some flash pulmonary edema signs, a little bit wet in their lungs. Maybe it just flash, look like a CHF patient. Hey, they just got irritated. Well, have you had CHF before? Well, no. Well, I don't. Why are you having a flash pulmonary edema? It's got a 200 times affinity for hemoglobin that an out of oxygen carbon monoxide does. Um, and it definitely shifts your hemoglobin to the left, shifts your curve way to the left. Basically, it's one of those things you just kind of got to rule out. I hate using the term rule out, but you got to rule it out. Carbon monoxide's tricky. Um, if you're not thinking about it, you're going to miss it. And I know I've had a couple of patients that for the first couple of hours, we weren't quite sure you know why were they unresponsive um history is a big part of this you know it may not be the patient who comes you know comes to you pulled out of a burning house is easy but um i've had a i've had a couple patients that we really didn't know what was going on with them once at least for those of us in the hospital once you think about it it's pretty easy to evaluate um we have at least in RED, nearly immediate access to co-oximetry that can measure carboxyhemoglobin. But if you don't think about it, you're going to miss it. The treatment is straightforward. You know, it's oxygen. So you give them as much oxygen as you can. If they're on the vent, crank them up to FI2 of 100%. Um, if they're um, not intubated, non-rebreather, crank it up. Um, and what this does is it helps, de- it decreases the half-life of um of the carboxyhemoglobin. Um, we're basically forcing the, the carbon monoxide off of the, of, off of the carboxyhemoglobin. Um, and once it's off the, uh, once it's no longer bound to the hemoglobin, you just breathe it out. Get the oxygen back in where it needs to be. I think an important point on this, um, if you're someone that maybe doesn't see this a lot or is less familiar, um, or maybe you're in a place where you can't check a carboxyhemoglobin level which I'm sure a lot of our hospitals around here cannot. Uh, the Probably the cardinal mistake that I would guess is made is that people decide uh, if they have carbon monoxide poisoning based off their pulse ox. Just because your pulse ox is 100% does not mean your patient does not have carbon monoxide mm-hmm. poisoning. Good point. Um, and so I think, especially in a place where you don't have the ability to check a level, 
Um, you should be treating these patients with 100% FiO2 if that's your, if, if it's on your radar, especially like Joe said, if you get a patient that was pulled out of a house fire, um, in my opinion, you should be treating that patient with 100% FiO2 um, regardless of their pulse ox um, in, in, until you get a carboxyhemoglobin level that, that, is, that is normal. And for those who aren't familiar with how a pulse ox works, pulse ox transmits two different wavelengths. One of them corresponds to deoxyhemoglobin, hemoglobin without oxygen bound. One of them corresponds to oxyhemoglobin, hemoglobin with oxygen bound. Um, and it measures the ratio of the two of those, and it calculates your uh, your SpO2, uh, your, your peripheral saturation of oxygen, and that's fairly well correlated to your SaO2, your arterial saturation of oxygen. The problem with carboxyhemoglobin is it locks hemoglobin into the same conformation, the same configuration as oxyhemoglobin. So your pulse ox is going to read that as oxyhemoglobin because it's the same, it's going to absorb the same wavelength of light as oxyhemoglobin. So these patients, you may, your oxygen saturation, your SpO2 may be reading 100%, but if they are, you know, if they have 40% uh, carboxyhemoglobin, their actual SAT, what they're getting delivered to their tissues is a SAT of 60%. I'll add one more little trick of the trade. That's using an entitled CO2 on nasal cannula. And entitled, it's a future podcast for those of you who hadn't heard it yet when it comes out, but entitled is a direct correlation to your cardiac output. And so if you're having some kind of cardiac problem, I'm not getting enough oxygen in my heart. I mean, you used to do a 12 lead on them, you see some LVH, that kind of stuff too, but just by simply putting a cannula on them, getting their entitled CO2, and it says, hey, normally this patient, they're breathing, you know, 18, 20 times a minute, entitled CO2 should be anywhere from 35 to 45, you know, normal level. And it's 20, it's a problem. It's a, it's a really big red flag, but you're, I got 100, 100%, their entitled's 20. Hey, off the bat, I'm thinking, all right, we got to we gotta do something. Let's get them on non-breather, put them in some inline dabs every once in a while, just try to make sure everything's humidified best we can, let it ride. Um, and that's something we can do in ambulance. I mean, it's super easy in ambulance every day. Um, and again, that, that can dictate your hospital care of, hey, look, I, I may be at this close to the community hospital. I can give them a heads up. Hey, I think this may be going on. If they've got a carboxy, great, they can tell you. Or, hey, this, this, this patient is going to need to go to the burn center and you go somewhere big. Just got the ability. Carbon monoxide, I got a question for you, yeah, Bill. Yeah, shoot. Um, you know, when y'all are going to pick these patients up, you know, I've run into this uh, only once or twice. To my knowledge, there's no facility in the state of Mississippi that will kind of jump ahead to, to hyperbaric oxygen that will actually do this on the intubated patient. Is that your experience? That's true. True statement. Um, there's a lot of hyperbaric chambers around the state. Most of them are used for warm care. They're not used for diving. They're not used for anything fun. They're not used for intubations. Um, so for Mississippi, we end up, typically our transport team does a lot of moving of them. Um, and we'll fly them different places. Uh, Mobile Infirmary has one. Mobile has one, um, but they are very limited. Um, Pensacola is a big one because of the Navy base. Birmingham has one, Atlanta. Um, Memphis is our closest one. We usually go to Memphis more than anything else. Um, and then we can go to New Orleans. Either way, these are these are patients going to be a while. Um, so we got to start the initial treatment, but then we end up taking them a long way. And well, I think I think that comes into point, kind of the reason I brought this up. Mm-hmm. So at what point is that indicated? And so oxygen really works very well to get carboxyhemoglobin 
uh, get carbon dioxide off, carbon monoxide off of hemoglobin. The issue is that it's not just going on your hemoglobin. It's, it gets in your brain as well, um, and you get neurotoxicity from it. And those are the, those are the ones we end up moving. It's and the ones you, that don't turn around pretty quick, the ones that don't have that. They don't have spontaneous movement. They start seizing. I've seen a lot of weird things happen with them. And the one, the seizures are the ones that bother me the most. Um, they start having the focal stuff, and then they deviate, and it's it's ugly. But those are the ones we end up moving. The other patient that I would think a lot about, um, even if their carbon monoxide level is not that high, is the pregnant patient. Um, the fetal brain is very sensitive to this. Oh, yeah. Um, and if I had, even if... You know, if I had a pregnant woman come in after a house fire with carbon dioxide of like 20, 30 percent, they may not, they may have only very mild symptoms at that level. But I would still be thinking about, I would be very strongly thinking about getting on the phone and trying to transfer them somewhere with a, that could. Yeah, definitely something to consider. And I think y'all make good points, right? And I think my point in bringing it up is not every carbon monoxide patient needs hyperbaric. Um, I think. Um, especially in a place with maybe limited resources, you, you really need to know um, the specific indications. And, and, you know, if you're at a, a smaller hospital, that's you have toxicologists, you have uh, other resources you can reach out to, to if you need guidance on on maybe you know, management of this patient, right? Because the um, worst thing you can do is send somewhere that can't perform those therapies, and now you're, you're even further behind. So we talked a little bit about carbon monoxide. Let's get the other one out of the way. Talk about hydrogen cyanide. Um, so colorless, bitterless almonds, again, uh, unlike carbon monoxide, which is colorless and odorless, um, again, old furniture, older buildings, um, flash pulmonary edema. These are the ones, with the cherry red skin. That's usually the one that they have rosy red cheeks on a regular day. No. Okay. Well, <laughs> something's a little different today. <laughs> um, the other thing that I've noticed just in a pre-hospital side back when I worked on Amazon all the time was vomiting. These patients would really? vomit a lot more. Wow. Um, kind of have that retching, like they just, man, my GI is all jacked up. Um, these are histotoxic. Um, they can't utilize oxygen effectively. So how do we start thinking off the bat, hey, they may have cyanide poisoning. Again, plastics, environment, all that history stuff we can get off the bat. But is there any other clues you go, hey, look, they find that cyano kit or the fancy, you know, hydroxycobalamin. What, what, what clues you all into thinking, hey, let's go down this path? These are the patients a lot of the time that they're sick. They come from fire. They're sick and you don't know why. Like they don't very have, sick. They yeah. They don't have a bunch of burns. Um, they're just shocky and not doing well. And they're um, on a presser yeah. six. Yep. I think back to one. To actually, it was two patients that I had uh, in the residency. So about five years ago, we both pulled out of a. Um, both pulled out of a house in cardiac arrest, and uh, the AMR AMR was able to get them intubated and got Ross by the time they got to us. But they were both they were both super sick, shocky, and that's when we that kind of clued us in. You know, again, it's history. Um, this will be you know, um, stereotypical one is it's a it's a trailer fire. A lot of plastic, uh, a lot of plastic material that gets combusted. Then products of combustion contain a lot of uh, cyanide. One of the largest studies that have been done with uh, cyanide or the cyanokit or hydroxycobalamin was done in France over about um, from 1987 to 1994. But um, they found that 67% of those patients with 
and then they only included patients with soot in their mouth had evidence of cyanide toxicity. So it's, again, what you see, the story, and um, the presence of soot, I think, is really kind of clue you into. Well, I think if you have any patient that's a house fire or any patient you're considering carbon monoxide, cyanide poisoning should also be on your radar. I mean, not that they always go hand in hand, um, but um, and you should think about them together. And there's a lot of overlapping of the symptoms, too. Something else that, again, you, you got somebody get, come in, profound shock, they're a cardiac arrest, like the ones you're talking about, Joe, or somebody, hey, we get them intubated, and now they're on three or four pressors, or hey, I just can't get their hemodynamic stability right. Um, even though I'm volume resuscitating them, everything looks okay. Something else that clues you in, I'm not a big lab guy. I mean, I like, I like some labs. I'm very, I'm very pointed with them. Yeah. But there, there's one thing with um, cyanide specifically that can clue you in to say, hey, look, this is, this is cyanide, it's nothing else, and it's a lactate. Yeah. So what cyanide does is it binds to cytochrome C in the mitochondria um, and basically shuts down uh, oxidative phosphorylation, so your normal mechanism for your body to produce energy, and shunts it all to anaerobic metabolism. Um, and the byproduct of anaerobic metabolism is lactate. So these patients are going to have high lactates, double-digit lactates, be profoundly acidemic from that. Yeah, like, like Joe said, for those of us who don't remember what a mitochondria or cytochrome C is, basically you're making the patient have anaerobic metabolism. Yeah. They, they jump into it real fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think, like you said, you're checking a lactate. And so actually, uh, you know, there are different cutoffs that people use, I think, depending on who you talk to, which study you read. I think a more conservative number, people use eight. Anything less than eight, uh, the risk goes down anything greater than eight, your risk is or pretty high. Some maybe less conservative would say 10. Um, I've talked with several of our toxicologists here, um, and they range, you know, eight to 10 um, is kind of their number, um, which you can get a little bit of lactic acidosis from uh, carbon monoxide alone, but it really, if you're pushing eight, 10 plus of lactate, um, I'm going to be reaching for cyanide. Yep, and it's really nice to get these levels early on in the their um, presentation, so in the air before they transfer. Just and then if they can have the lab cooking and just call us at the hospital or their transfer facility when that lab comes back. And I think just with the short half life of cyanide, it's really important to get a lot of early lactates. And uh, you know, outside of here, uh, I say UMC, but outside of really big you know definitive care centers they're not going to get a cyanide level but you get a lactate pretty easy everybody's got the eye stats or some kind of thing they can get back in 30 minutes and give you a ballpark so will is this something that y'all carry uh through our air care service uh cyano kits are rapid pull from jackson only um typically these kits are quite expensive and these days kind of rare to get um and so we have them here at the hospital we can literally lay on the roof run down to the pharmacy make a phone call and they're there most places don't have them um kind of depends on where you are in the world if they got them or not i've flown three of them over my i've been here six years and i've flown three um i used two of them one of them i didn't have to use and then there's been i don't know how many cases where i wish i had it and i didn't have it so even here sometimes we're short i'm going back to the case that i talked was talking about again this has been a few years but we got these two patients and i was told hey we have one cyanocate so I got to look, see who's the sicker. And we actually had the old school sodium nitrite, sodium thiosulfite kit for the other patients. 
Oh, well, I'm really wound up giving. Oh, hey, there you go. Yeah, and Joe kind of hit the nail on the head is, uh, you know, you might have to make some tough decisions mm-hmm. with this. And, um, you know, I even looked last night, and we have two kits right now. Yeah. And it's, again, on shortage like every other medication, it seems, right now. The fire, it's easy to get a, it's easy to get a mass casualty incident. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, who's sicker, who's lactate is higher, who's on more presser. So, Michael, if you let's say you have this situation, right? You got four or five patients that yeah. come in from a house fire, and you got one cyanide kit. Uh, you give that maybe to your sickest patient, maybe yeah. uh, your younger patient or whatever. Are you are you pulling out the old Lily kits? I don't know if they're even made anymore. They're hard. They're hard to find. I haven't found one in date. I've seen. I'm seeing a little bit. Of, a couple months expired by years. Yeah. But uh, I. I mean, if you can make one, if you've got the sodium thiophosphate, I mean, if you've got all the stuff, I guess. Yeah, I mean, but if you have something that you can, you know, maybe do to bind the cyanide, and if you have a high. I mean, that's the time you're just trying to grasp with anything you can to save this patient's life. So, real quick, we talk about the the dosing. Of this it usually comes in a five gram vial. You're doing five grams over 15 minutes. And you can repeat it times one for the kids. It's 70 per kilo, 70 uh 70 milligrams. Um, and then again, you can repeat it times one if you need to. Usually, it's I don't know. You give the first dose, kind of see what happens, and then go from there. I've never seen. I've seen people get the second dose, but it's always totally patient dependent. How are they doing hemodynamically? How are they are they getting any better? Are they getting worse? That kind of stuff. You all see anything different with that? Is it pretty much any other criteria? In my experience, it's usually a pretty dramatic response to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's really cool about the Cyanokit is that it'll actually bind intracellular cyanide. So you can really bind it inside the cell where it's affecting the mitochondria. And kind of turn the lights back on the powerhouse so we can start crushing through aerobic metabolism so i thought that was actually like really cool and right. then, um, just kind of quickly some um, points just about signing kit because um, i've mixed two in my life and i've thrown both of them at will <laughs> <laughs> um, but so in the kit you get the medication a transfer spike and some vented tubing but what it doesn't come with is your diluent to reconstitute it and so they tell you that you can use uh, 200 milliliters of normal saline, but hey, you might not run, might have not having more normal saline bags in the hospital, or you might only have a bag of lactated ringers on the truck or on the helicopter. And so, fortunately, this is compatible and can be dissolved with lactated ringers and even D5W. So there are many different fluids that we can use to reconstitute this file. It, which brings that compatibility. I mean, every, you know, you talk about really fancy drugs most of the time. Hey, it's got to be on its own line. We want to keep it yeah. separate. We don't want anything, you know, turning all kind of fun colors and stuff. But um, these are one of those literally just shove it in there. They, they don't care how you get it. You just get it in there and be done with it. Yeah, um, run it through your cleanest line. Also, the most important med. fun fact, don't get weirded out when the urine changes color because it's going to turn pink. <laughs> it's going to turn very, very pink. Yeah. Um, Everything turns red. It's like you spilled a big, big, uh, Basic Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, don't get weird out. That's normal. That's okay. They didn't just develop an AKI. I promise they're okay. But the one thing that it will um, cause is it'll affect your interpretation of your laboratory values. And so anything that is uh, uses color metric to determination, used to quantify the lab, it's going to be altered. So uh, fortunately, there's a really nice table within the package insert of the signing kit. But for instance, you're going to have an artificially increase in your bilirubin. And for instance, that can last for four days, falsely elevated. It can falsely elevate your hemoglobin. 
but then it can decrease your ALT and amylase. But fortunately, it really doesn't have any effect on your electrolytes um, or your like white blood cell count or anything, but it's going to definitely cause some lab alterations. Pretty much wraps up our theory side of this. Um, I think it's going to be a pretty, good, a pretty good overview of whatever, everything we've talked about, of what you're going to see with inhalation injuries, what you may or may not see. Um, this next podcast, we're, ne- next episode, we're going to do the actual uh, application, talk about a couple of patients we dealt with and how we, how we manage those. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.